I think fathers feel extraordinary degrees of powerlessness because you're there as the protector of your family and you're rendered powerless by nature first and then by the medical system. Absolutely. She would go in one week, talk to one doctor, and the doctor would assure her that everything is fine and it looks great. And then she would go in the next week. It would be like almost catastrophic, right? The doctor's like, well, when we see this fetal growth restriction, it's not good. It's stressful. Trisha, how would a couple know at this point if they're dealing with small for gestational age versus intrauterine growth restriction? That's the million-dollar question around IUGR. And when you're trying to get out of the hospital and you're like, well, baby's fine. Mom's fine. It's eight in the morning. The next day we've slept. It's time to go. And it's like, well, you're not allowed to leave until the pediatrician signs off on this baby. And it's like, well, I'm telling you the baby's fine. And I'm the dad. (laughs) Right. And it's like, well, if you leave now, we're going to call CPS on you. I felt like I was in like prison. I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Trisha Ludwig, certified nurse midwife and international board-certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth Podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. My name is Eric R. I live in Loveland, Colorado uh, with my wife, Erin, and we have two beautiful daughters. Uh, One is two and a half. The other is about five months. And, um, you know, I wanted to come on the show and talk about, uh, you know, our fetal growth restriction diagnosis that we got and kind of our journey going through that. And, you know, we had originally intended to do, uh, you know, a birth at a birthing center and then wanted to do a home birth and then ended up in the hospital. So I can kind of talk about that journey and the hospital birth. Yeah. Eric, really quickly, this is the story of your second daughter, right? The five yes. months old. So just in a nutshell, so you were, you were, you know, I always feel like fathers go into their subsequent births feeling a little bit more like experts and moms are always feeling like they're starting from square one every time they get pregnant again. So you must have had a little bit of that relief that you already had been through it once. How would you summarize the first birth experience and what your experience was the first time around so that we know who you felt like you were going into the second birth before this unexpected thing came up for you? Absolutely. Yeah. So the the birth of our first child was kind of during the peak of, you know, what I would call the COVID hysteria at the hospital. And, you know, your first birth, you're not thinking like, oh, I want to do something really wild and different and have a home birth. It seems like scary. So we, I mean, we were a hundred percent committed to doing everything through the official quote, traditional hospital system. And so the first birth you know, it was obviously a wonderful, beautiful, amazing experience. My daughter came into the world and my life was profoundly changed forever. There was a lot of stuff that happened at the hospital because, you know, peak COVID time or just like what I hear a lot on, on y'all's podcasts around just the stuff that they do at the hospital in general. You know, one of the things that was like a COVID procedure was, you know, they weren't letting a lot of support people be there. So, you know, having that experience and all those things, we were like excited for the birth of our second daughter. Like 
to to do this birthing center, right? And uh, we worked with Tender Gifts, who were amazing uh, in Northern Fort Collins, and we were just super excited that like, okay, we had this kind of experience during the birth of our first daughter. Let's try something that's that's going to let us feel more at home and and having as many support people as we wanted. Um, so we were really looking forward to that opportunity with our second baby. Um, we found out we were pregnant in December, 2022. Everything was normal, healthy at our 20 week ultrasound. And we did to know the gender, like a lot of folks do, you know, they did mention that the baby was about a week behind in the, the charts and stuff. And they also noticed that the placenta was sitting kind of low, right? And so that was like another area where they were a little concerned. They were like, you know, maybe come back at 28 weeks and get another ultrasound just to make sure that placenta has shifted. And so, you know, we we did that. Um, we went for the 28-week ultrasound. At that time, you know, they gave us news that the baby was measuring below 10 percentile on a lot of different measurements and that as part of the state of Colorado's regulations on birthing centers that they could no longer do the birth there. They still offered, you know, midwives, but that was kind of devastating news for us. Um, Eric, was this only based on the ultrasound and one, one, one ultrasound? I mean, it was, it was two ultrasounds. I think, but only one, the first was normal. Only one ultrasound that said anything was different correct and we were we were not sure about the due date you know date of conception kind of thing we we went in sort of blind to the idea that that might impact this considerably and and that'll come out kind of as i tell the story but it, it ended up seeming like that was probably the main thing was just we didn't know the conception date and we were way early with some of this stuff were they basing her guest date on her last period yeah, and which was also pretty shaky because having just had a baby and and been breastfeeding, she wasn't getting regular periods, right? Yeah, so you don't know when she ovulated anyway, right? Right. So it's sort of a guess, right? So many women don't have normal cycles, don't know exactly when they conceived, and unless you had that that early ultrasound um, for dating, it's hard it's hard to pick the date, and that's just an example of why we really need to not put so much emphasis on due dates because we can really derail a pregnancy. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, because of the fetal growth restriction diagnosis, it's like now there's all these concerns and worry, maybe there's something wrong, you know, and I had in my heart, you know, my gut instinct, um, the whole time that no, the baby's fine. There's nothing to worry about. I just knew, right. That it was going to work out and be okay. Um, but of course the path that the, the doctors recommend now is lots of testing, right? They want multiple visits per week. So he's driving like 40 minutes up to the hospital now or, you know, uh, maternal fetal medicine to get tests. And and it's the ironic thing about all this stuff is they keep calling them non-stress tests. <laughs> I always say like, that's an ironic term. It's the most stress-inducing, it's the most stress-inducing thing they can do to women in late pregnancy. Well, right. She seemed very stressed, <laughs> right? It's like, I'm going for my non-stress test and she's trying to get out the door and drive 40 minutes with a two-year-old. And um, well, so I'll just explain quickly where the name comes from. It is totally in not a good name because it is a stressful experience, but Prior to the non-stress test, um, 
they actually used to induce contractions in mothers and it was called a contraction stress test. So they would actually make you have contractions and see how the baby tolerated it. What? I had no idea. And so it's now called a non-stress test because they removed that contraction stress. (laughs) Can you imagine like we're, we're forcing contractions upon a baby in a body that's not ready to see how they respond to see if the baby has tolerance for this? In the name of the baby's wellness. And what I've always noticed with women over the years when they have non-stress tests is they go and everything is fine. And then they leave and they're still just a ball of nerves because they were put in that state of never feeling that it's really okay. You don't get news good enough and reassuring enough. It's just a matter of like, okay, things look okay for now, but we're going to check on you again in a couple of days. And they just live in a state of stress. And is that similar to what you observed in your wife, Eric? Absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean. Did you specify exactly what they picked up in the 28-week ultrasound that indicated IUGR? Um, I know that the baby measured below the 10th percentile, like overall with, with size. And then there was like the stomach was above the 10th percentile, but like everything else was smaller. On the ultrasound itself, everything looks great. The measurements were maybe below the percentile we needed, but they were all kind of congruent, right? So, so the baby was growing normally. It wasn't like the the head was really big, or you know, organs were out of proportion or anything like that. So, that was really reassuring. The Dopplers that they were doing, they would tell us things like, "Well, we're seeing some decreased flow in in the you know from the placenta and the umbilical cord." So, that's somewhere where we might be concerned. And there was a lot of like. She would go in one week, talk to one doctor, and the doctor would assure her that everything is fine and it looks great. And then she would go in the next week. Maybe the test results were slightly different, but the doctor, it would be like almost catastrophic, right? The doctor is like, well, when we see this fetal growth restriction, it's not good. There was a lot of that. It's stressful. And, And so, yeah, she would come home and we would talk about it. And I felt that everything was going to be fine. The the midwives, they told us like, we've seen babies do this before where they've grown from this diagnosis. And then you can still do the birthing center or the home birth, pray for a miracle kind of thing. And we were right. So it wouldn't even be a miracle if the baby just gets past that 10%, 10th percentile. It's just an ultrasound. Trisha, how would a couple know at this point, if they're dealing with small for gestational age versus the more serious diagnosis of intrauterine growth restriction? That's the million dollar question around IUGR. This is what everybody is trying to determine is, is a baby just SGA or are they truly growth restricted? So the first thing, question, first question that comes to my mind is, did Erin have any pregnancy complications? Did she have gestational diabetes? Did she have hypertension? Did she have any underlying risk factors for IUGR? Did she smoke? Did she do drug, drugs? Things like that too, right, Trisha? Yep, those are on there. Mm-hmm. My wife is probably one of the healthiest people I know, right? So, I mean, in general, like she's a fitness coach and instructor, you know, um, our nutrition is extremely dialed in. Yeah, so I I never had any doubt in my mind that she was able to <laughs> to to do her job in this well, right? She doesn't do drugs. She doesn't smoke. She doesn't. No risk factors is what you're saying. 
Right. Exactly. So, so what what is used to determine IUGR is still it's still kind of unclear. There isn't consensus around this. And this is part of the problem. And everybody's jumping on these little babies that might just be SGA. In the looking at the Doppler flow, that is more diagnostic. So if there is evidence of significantly reduced blood flow to the placenta, then of course you, in a, in a baby who's not growing well, that is a concern. Um, if they're just under the 10th percentile, but they're consistently growing I don't see how that's IUGR. You know, if a ba- if a baby's at the tenth percentile and then the seventh percentile and then the fifth percentile and then the second percentile week after week after week, that's growth restriction. Even if they're in the fortieth and then the twenty eighth and then the fourteenth, exactly, I would say that should be a bigger red flag than a baby yes. that's just measuring around right nine or ten. We're talking about babies who are not consistently growing, not just babies who are small. Well, and the thing is the vast majority are already in the right range. The question you're asking is how many are the average? And we can't have babies that are in the average. I mean, how many? Right. You have to have bigger ones and you have to have the smaller ones. The normal scale is a bell curve from one to a hundred. And we don't all need to be between 45 and 55% for everything. We have to remember that for every baby that's in the 50th percentile, there must be a baby in the second. There must be a baby in the 99th. There must be someone in the 72nd. This is under a normal bell curve distribution. It's the anomalies that they need to look for, but they're looking under the bell curve of normal for a lot of these things. Yes. Once we go down this path of measuring the stomach, the femur, the head, I mean, we are getting, it's so nebulous and they're just putting little points. Talk about subjective because we're measuring something that's three-dimensional with two-dimensional with a line, with two, with a line. There are certain measurements that are more accurate with ultrasound and there are other measurements that are very inaccurate. And we know that estimating, you know, weight is very inaccurate because of what you just said about, you know, three-dimensional measurements. Eric, I just want to talk for a minute before you continue with um, one of the most difficult things I think for couples in such a situation is that we often hear of dads like you who have a solid gut instinct just enough removal from the situation to know that everything is really okay. Uh, Once in a while, and it is really rare, but it does happen. Once in a while, the father gets more anxious than the mother, but the norm is for her to be lying awake in bed while you're sleeping, her eyes wide open. I mean, it's, you know, there is definitely an impending feeling when you're pregnant that this baby must be well, and this baby must come through your body and out of you. It just is a different experience inherently. It's a vastly different experience being the father versus the mother. But how does a couple deal with that? It's such a struggle when, you know, sometimes for the woman who's so anxious, she can feel the comfort in her husband knowing everything is okay, or she can feel frustration saying, how come you're not more concerned about this? And are you taking my worries seriously enough? How did it go between the two of you? Hey there, all you amazing, strong and beautiful women, especially you new moms and moms to be. I'm Taylor, co-founder and CEO of Vitality. And I'm Taylor's sister, Chloe, co-founder and chief design officer. We started Vitality to encourage and empower everyone to live a vibrant life. We're all about supporting women, especially on the journey to motherhood. When I was pregnant, I really struggled to find comfy leggings that I could wear all day, every day. So we set out to make the best maternity pants out there. 
We took those pain points and designed pieces that were supportive and comfortable, including details like a high-rise fit, underbelly seam, raw cut hems, and to top it off, we have an embedded silicone panel that acts like a built-in suspension system for your low back, which is the first of its kind. So we designed this line in our Marshmallow Soft Cloud 2 fabric in not only a maternity pant, but a volley and biker short as well. Let me tell you, all of these pieces are a game changer. Just go to shopvitality.com. And cherry on top, you guys can use code down to birth at checkout to get 10% off your order. 10% off athleisure designed for pregnancy during pregnancy. Down to birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. Recovering from a vaginal birth takes many women by surprise. Everyday activities like sitting, walking, and going to the bathroom can be uncomfortable. And Postpartum Soothe is just the remedy to support your healing and relieve discomfort. Postpartum Soothe is a 100% organic herbal blend that's applied to maternity pads in the days immediately following your birth, giving you all the benefits of a sits bath 24-7. That's because herbs like comfrey leaf, uva ursi, and witch hazel are known for their antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory properties. Postpartum Soothe can be prepared anytime during the third trimester, and it makes a beautiful baby gift. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, S-O-O-T-H-E dot com, and use promo code DOWNTOBIRTH. Did you know that 97% of women take a prenatal vitamin, yet 95% of us are still deficient in key nutrients for pregnancy and postpartum? After a long time searching for the optimal prenatal nutrition product, we bring you Needed a radically better prenatal vitamin. Needed's nutritional products offer nutrients that your body can utilize with doses at optimal versus bare minimum levels and are available in capsules and an easy-to-take vanilla powder, perfect for those moms with pill fatigue or nausea. Needed is a woman-founded company offering a superior nutritional product lineup backed by research, data, and insights from nearly 4,000 women's health experts. Needed offers premium supplements for every stage, from egg quality support for women trying to conceive to lactation support for breastfeeding. And you know, Cynthia and I, we love their botanical sleep and relaxation support packets before bedtime. So if you are looking for a radically different prenatal, head on over to thisisneeded.com and enter down to birth for 20% off your first order. Yeah, I mean, I'll definitely comment there that it was it was difficult for me in a lot of ways um the anxiety the stress the worrying and and yeah seeing aaron go through that it had to be 10 times or more <laughs> worse for her and i would just say like she over she really handled everything with a lot of grace and i'm i'm lucky that she's such a strong person and you know, I saw my role there a lot of times as just being someone she could vent to or talk to and pray with and, you know, not feel the need to take control of a situation. And I had to allow myself a lot of times to say to her, like, you know, of course, I don't know that everything is going to be fine. Of course, I'm scared, but there's nothing we can do. At this point, it's like just being there for her and trying to be a good husband, right? And making sure that I was spending a lot of time with my daughter so that, you know, Aaron could go to the gym or, you know, do the things that she loves to do. 
and and just being a supportive husband. I mean, I, I think it did give us a really good opportunity to grow together. You know, like I mentioned, we we started praying together a lot more. That I think helped <laughs> for us as a whole. It was incredibly stressful, but it did bring us together. You know, overall, it was good for our relationship to kind of go through that kind of stuff and rely on each other for support, not just the ways that we normally do. And and it was a trying experience, which every couple is going to go through something like that at some point. So, yeah, I, I don't know that I was always the best about it, right? There's so much opportunity for uh, fathers to <laughs> grow in these experiences and you know, really learning from her, like, wow, she's, she's dealing with this and she's making the drive. The, the main thing is just like the driving all the time to these the position on her. Yeah. Yeah. It's and incredible and, position. and worse, you know. worse than the driving and the logistics yeah. of it is the mental load that she had to carry of worrying about what was going to happen every time she went to the appointment. What am I going to be told today? Am I going to be told the anticipation of, am I going to be told that my baby is in harm, you know, in a, in a dangerous situation is in harm, or am I going to be relieved and told that everything is okay in the up and down of wondering and not that. getting either one of those things definitively, like definitively, like you said, it's like that open-ended fear is really tough psychologically. You know, then you're left with the feeling, is it something I'm doing wrong? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So what, what happened in late pregnancy? Tell us the story yes. of when the baby came. So, so at 34 weeks, the baby measured over the 12th percentile, which is extremely encouraging. They still were not ready to release her back to the birthing center because even though like the 10% was supposed to be the threshold, but like you're saying, it was like, well, you know, the stomach and the head look good, but the shoulder, you know, we still oh got some God. things that are under this percentage. And so we don't want to release you back to the, the midwives just yet. So, so the following week, the baby That's measured fine. in the 22nd percentile. Okay. So they didn't have any excuse to keep us at the hospital. Uh, okay. I, just for the record, that is yeah. incredible evidence of the inaccuracy of ultrasound. That baby did not jump to, right. to what 10 percentile in one week. In, From so the 12th to the 22nd? Yeah. 34 weeks to 37 weeks. So four, oh. so four weeks, three weeks. It's still a huge, still a huge massive trajectory. jump in yeah. yeah. a baby who's growth restricted. Right. That makes no sense. No <laughs> sense. So at that point, they they had to release us back to the the midwives and the the birthing center. Um, and they're like, "Oh, sorry, we've been wrong all along. Your baby right. hasn't been growth. Your baby hasn't been growth restricted this whole time. Those were their rules. At twelve percent, they really should have done it. The fact that they just kept you guys on after that was not necessary. Keeping you anxious for another three weeks, you had to like knock this number out of the park by some weird metric to even it just doesn't make sense but what happened next 37 weeks right right so 38 to 40 weeks you know we were back at at tender gifts our our midwives and the maternal fetal medicine doctors were like well this never happened you know this never happens and the midwives you were wrong right. <laughs> that's why it never happened do you know how often i've heard that through couples right. this never happens of course, there's a huge catch in this entire scenario where like all this hope and, and joy that we were feeling about that is like, well, at the same time, if the baby doesn't come at 42 weeks, you got to go back to the hospital. Nothing you can do. It's the state regulations on home births and birthing centers. So, you know, 
leading up to that time, that deadline, we're doing everything we can to get that baby out. We're doing prenatal massage and we're going on walks. We're going on bumpy car rides. We're trying to do everything. Bumpy car rides. <laughs> bumpy car rides. That's we've read all kinds of stuff to to try and you know bouncing on the ball. And my my wife was this was probably the most you know. And is it like your own anxiety again? That's keeping the baby in there now. And um, how many weeks were you when you guys were going through all this? So yeah, this was like 39, 40 weeks now, where like we we need to get the baby out, otherwise we have to do a hospital birth. Anyway, how, what happened? What happened? So yeah, 40 weeks, 41 weeks. And then finally it was, you know, the, the deadline day that Sunday. So we, we had to schedule an induction at 42 weeks. Um, Wait, now, the induction was still optional. You just had to take it over to the hospital, right? You could. Just sure. Induction. Yeah, no, I, you're right. So, so this is just like the best medical advice that we got, right? It's like one of those things where we had that conversation about like, you know, look, we don't have to do the induction. I mean, I can only say that like at this point we were so fatigued from this whole process that it was like, it was really difficult to consider that like saying no to the doctors, right? It's so yeah. hard sometimes that they're saying like, well, this is the best thing for your baby. This is the best thing for mom. We know we're the, you know, we're the hospital. We, we, we do this all the time. And so, you know, just for the birth, um, you know, we, we went in at, uh, what the doctors thought was 42 weeks. Uh, we did the induction with Pitocin, uh, minimal Pitocin, but you know, whatever that is. And, uh, you know, just in the absolute praise of my wife and what a strong, amazing person she is. She did both of these births, both of my daughters with no epidural. And, um, also her sister was our doula for, for both of the births. And, uh, but isn't it, isn't it interesting that, doctors and hospital doctors, mostly not hospitals, they're willing to change your due date based on, you know, the baby's looking big or whatever. They'll move your due date up. You already know that you didn't have a good, accurate due date on this. And she's most likely not 42 weeks. Right. The baby's not here because she's not ready yet because she's not 42 weeks. And they're, they're unwilling to look at that. They're willing to induce you and move your due date up, but they're not willing in the situation like this to be like, Hey, you know what? You didn't actually have a very good estimated due date for this baby. And maybe, you know, we just need to give it a little more time because she's not actually this far along in pregnancy. Right. And that, that came to be kind of more clear after they, they did the Ballard score. So that's when the assessment they do on the baby after they're born to estimate gestational age. Right. And really? when they did when they and did what, that, did it, what did it come out as? 40 weeks. Yeah, see? Oh. How accurate is that, Trisha? Um, I mean... Like everything else? <laughs> Not accurate. Yeah, no. I, there's, it, <laughs> they told it's us it's more accurate than yeah, like ultrasounds and stuff. Oh, wow. So it is highly accurate. And it was 40 weeks. So this means that if they had had the right estimated due date from the start, none of this ever would have happened? Sounds like it to me. Yeah, yeah. And... What what also, I mean, this is also like a retrospect pointing to blame at doctors, and I don't want to do that, but you know, if we had listened to the best medical advice, we would have then induced our baby at 38 weeks, right? Because they they were like, Well, we want to induce it at 40 weeks. We're, you know, we would love that because 
that that was again like their best medical advice that we were sort of like no we're going to at least wait until the 42 week date so yeah i mean the the due date thing is critical and and knowing these things in retrospect it's like we would have done so much differently right you said you don't want to blame doctors and yeah. i always find that interesting when anyone says something like that first of all in my vocabulary i don't use the word fault and i don't use the word blame i really don't like or agree with those words however if this if you had been pushed into an induction too early or if you had been um told you had IUGR with all these unnecessary interventions and all the scared that you went through, all the stress you went through, they were responsible for this. Right. I mean, we don't have to remain ever deferential to doctors and we don't have to, look, they are getting birth wrong in this country. Oh, Mortality yeah. rates are just rising and rising while they're lowering everywhere else. It is okay to say, wow, they really almost caused harm. I mean, it's true. They almost caused harm based on bad information while they were looking at you and saying, look, we're the experts. We know what we're talking about. They weren't humble enough to say, we really aren't 100% sure, but this is what we're concerned about. And these are some options. They weren't doing that. So, you know, I, I appreciate how, I don't know, where you're coming from when you say, I don't want to blame doctors. And I, again, it's not a term I would use, but. I do think we have to hold our trusted medical providers to a higher standard. And there has to be more humility on their side. There has to be better expectations on our side. And we do have to look at where the responsibility lies because it does lie with, you know, it lies with us in some ways, the decisions we make, it lies with them with the recommendations they're giving and how much pressure they're applying to couples. You are, you are putting your trust in them that this is the best medical advice, right? you were you were given the best medical advice and it's not the best medical advice and they those giving out that advice need to be responsible and accountable to whether or not they're giving the best advice or not that's you didn't get informed consent true informed consent you didn't get the potential risks of the fact that you know what we don't know that this is an accurate due date and we might be inducing early nobody said that to you yeah, no, I, I mean, the reason I, I said that is just I have a lot of anger towards those people. Okay, well, here, now now we're getting to the real truth. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm just trying to like sugarcoat it, right? Like, I, well, I don't do that. Let's hear how you really feel. Talk about your yeah, anger. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, they, they, they put risks on my child, right? I mean, I can't describe the amount of anger that makes me feel, right? So having gone through the first birth with, the crazy COVID madness, right? Like that was, that was enough for me to be like, there's something really broken here um, with not just the medical system, but like the, the birthing thing it appears to me to be sort of the front lines of this medical freedom thing that's going on in, in America. And, um, you know, I don't want to sound like a crazy extremist or something, right? Like I, I do it's the most think rational that, thing in the world to question these things. Right. And and I do I do want to believe in my heart that these people want to help. Part of the part of the problem is that they they truly don't believe that they're doing harm to a baby right. by inducing them at 38 weeks. They they believe that the baby is it's better if they can control the labor and birth process through induction or cesarean and get that baby out sooner rather than later. That's they they don't respect 
entrust the process of physiologic birth and all the uh, all the subtle benefits that come with going into labor naturally and how that influences a mother over her lifetime. They're not thinking about that. They're literally thinking about making sure that baby is born safely and that's it. Right. And it's, it's very much to me, like a, it's like, it's almost like a factory farm kind of situation, right? Like they're doing everything for the lowest common denominator. And I understand like you have, you know, it's a teen mom who goes in there, who's got all sorts of health problems. Maybe she's got drug problems and things like that. And, you know, they're, they're seeing all kinds of people come in there. And, and so, you know, that's where like, for me, like, I don't want to prejudge their, their motivations, their intentions, their, their morals or ethics or where they're coming from. But, but even with like the delivery, like as the baby's coming out, um, like the doctor wasn't in the room when the baby was born and she was like freaking out. I got like, she came in like, Oh, you had the baby without me in here and things like that. And like, I'm not sure if this is true or not. So, you know, this might be speculation, but like I, someone was telling me like, if the doctor's not in the room, when the baby comes out, they don't get a certain bonus or something or money. Like they don't get paid. paid. I I don't know if that's true or not, but she was really upset when she came in and and that baby had come out while she wasn't in there. It's so upsetting. She's blaming the mother. She was giving birth. Yeah. The way her body is just, you know, telling her to do that. She's upset that she, her body didn't wait for her to be in there. Yeah. We I mean, have yeah. celebrating that she we should have- be looking at her and hugging her and going, great job. Look at you. You're so powerful. You're, you know, your body knows exactly what to do. You didn't even need me. We yeah. have about 15, we have a lot of listeners um, outside of the U.S. all over the world and re- on a regular basis, over 80 countries and about 15 percent of our listeners are outside of this country. And I always think of them when we talk about things like this, they, they're I think their jaws drop collectively when they hear this talk of money, because it is just, it's the only country in the world where you are tying healthcare to revenue targets for literally publicly traded companies and people are shareholders and stakeholders. It's just unbelievable that we even have to discuss it and speculate. Um, But I do want to acknowledge one other thing that we're talking about. I don't, I agree with you. Like, I don't, I don't like to speak to anyone's motivation or intentions or morals because I can't get inside their head, but I can judge the actions and that the things they say to you, we can have opinions on and make judgments around the things they do to you. And what we need to talk about more is not like, well, at least everything worked out. Okay. Robbing women of what could have been a better experience is an injustice. Yeah, I and that's agree what more. happened. That's exactly what happened with you and Aaron. You know yeah. it. They robbed you of a better prenatal experience and birth experience. And it's not being taken into consideration how that undermines a woman's sense of herself and her transition into motherhood. Birth is a rite of passage, and it is meant to be an empowering one. It is meant to. It is meant for a woman to feel in her most, you know, glorious state in birth, and that is constantly taken away from women through people managing their labors and managing their birth and intervening and undermining their experience. 
Yeah. And like, I'll, I'll never forget as the baby sitting on the warmer and, and we're just there waiting, like it was just like glaring at the nurse and the nurse kind of gave me this thing. She's like, do, do you have a problem? Is there, is everything okay, dad? And I wanted to strangle her. And it was like, I had to just sit there and think, well, if I do anything crazy, CPS is going to get called on me or something. There's so many conflicting emotions that like, I can't just take control of the situation like I want to, because I'm going to look like an insane person. <laughs> I think right? fathers feel extraordinary degrees of powerlessness through the birth process. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's really hard because you're yeah. there as the protector of your family and you're rendered powerless by nature first and then by the medical system. And when you're trying to get out of the hospital and you're like, well, I, baby's fine. Mom's fine. It's eight in the morning. The next day we, we've slept. It's time to go. And it's like, well, you, you're not allowed to leave until the pediatrician signs off on this baby. And it's like, well, I'm telling you the baby's fine. And I'm the dad. <laughs> right. And it's like, well, if you leave now, we're going to call CPS on you. I felt like I was in like prison. I mean, this is the same when my first daughter was born too, right? During the, the COVID stuff, it was like, I had sort of been prepared for that once we knew we had to go back in the hospital. It's like, you get kind of looks from these people like, what are you, a bad parent because you want to leave the hospital? It's like, no, like the baby, we don't belong here in this windowless room as a family on the first day of my baby's life, you know? How did this experience change you? Oh my gosh. Well, being being a dad has totally changed my life uh, in general. I mean, I'm 38 <laughs> And, you know, so we didn't have our first until I was 36. This just, there's nothing that has made me a better person in my life than having a kid. <laughs> the second has been an even greater, like there's just, the, your capacity to love is only going to grow. It seems scary when you're a single guy or maybe, you know, a newlywed who is scared to become a father because for me personally, it was like, I didn't think I had the capacity to love this much. And I thought it was going to be so much work. And it is a lot of work. But <laughs> the first time I heard my first daughter cry in the hospital, it was like this feeling of pure joy. And, and it makes everything worth it. Thanks for joining us at the Down to Birth Show. You can reach us at Down to Birth Show on Instagram or email us at contact at downtobirthshow.com. All of Cynthia's classes and Trisha's breastfeeding services are held live, online, serving women and couples everywhere. Please remember this information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. For our full disclaimer, visit downtobirthshow.com slash disclaimer. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, hear everyone and listen to yourself. You know, she loves y'all's podcast. She was super excited that I was going to come on and talk. So I hope that I I did her justice with telling the story. Um, and yeah, just extremely thankful for y'all for, you know, doing this kind of thing for medical freedom. And like I said, it really is the front lines. and we got to do something and talking about it is, is super important. And I'm just really glad for the opportunity to kind of share the story.